finally room to have two equipping classes. So what a blessing. Church History and New Testament survey now. Uh, we'll switch around in the summer. And then next fall, I'm hoping to do systematic theology again, which is a two-year class, basically, with all the parts. And I'm not sure what Frank or other teachers might be doing. Handout going around. Uh, Owen, you might set that somewhere over by the door. Okay, well, let me pray. And then we're going to jump into church history. We're going to first start in the scriptures where the church begins and then hopefully get into the apostolic fathers. Lord, we thank you for church history that you have recorded it uh, through the lives of men and through their stories and through their writings. We know that it's not inspired like the scriptures, but there are still many lessons we can learn and we can see how faithful men interpreted scripture and taught it and died for the faith. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by church history, to be motivated, to be willing to die for the faith if our time came, and to be willing to live for Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, handouts. Uh, We're going to get to those in a minute. I do encourage you to take notes, especially just sort of bullet points of the people we're covering in church history. If you do any kind of theological reading, you're going to hear some of these names. You're going to see them in other places. They're often cited to show the continuation of a certain doctrine from the Bible until today. It's good to have some notes. I'm not always going to provide everything in a handout. Today I've got two charts, front and back. But if you want to start a notebook, I would advise that. Just some notes. I like to recommend books as well to help you learn more. And we have a lot of church history books in the bookstore. You need to know church history. And a great little book to get you started, it's only about 80 pages, is Sinclair Ferguson's Church History 101. Has anybody got that on them? It's a little book. I mean, it's, you know, that wide, that tall, 80 pages. You could probably read it in a couple of hours. And that's a good primer. That's a good priming the pump just to get a quick survey of 2,000 years of church history. Sinclair Ferguson, Church History 101. You can pick that up in the bookstore. Has anybody ever studied church history in depth before? Anybody really like church history? Hopefully some of, somebody does They're in this class, right? Does anybody like to read biographies, church history books? That's some of my favorite, especially I think being in ministry, you get to see what guys like Charles Spurgeon went through and what he had to overcome and how he still had such a blessed ministry. And John Calvin and these reformers and the people who died for the faith, early church fathers. It's very encouraging to me. And I hope it will be to you as well. All right, so you should be seeing my slides up here. We want to just start off with a real basic question. Why study church history? So first I want to hear some of your answers. And I think they'll be similar to some of mine. But maybe you have some additional ones. Why study church history? What's well, a good reason to study church history? I'll be asking questions, by the way. In a sermon, yet, right, you guys are quiet and I'm preaching. In a class, I'll be asking questions. And the way I do it is if nobody answers, then I pick the people I, that I know their name and I just start asking them, which is most of you. Uh, I would say it's, uh, we tend to start asking, realize that um, the gates of hell have not prevailed. Right. Good, yeah. We're not the first Christians after the apostles, right? Did But the church did not start five years ago. It started 2,000 years ago. Caleb? Just some of the things that the church had to deal with over time, heresies, and so we can learn from that. It's really nothing new. Like so there's, you 
see a lot of consistency uh, throughout the church as well, and the persistence of grounding it in biblical truth and to fight for that. Yeah, those heresies come back around just in a little different name. They call it something else, it's some new thing, but it's the same old heresy that we'll really see in the early, early church. Of God's providence and how He's worked out His plan over time. When they were in the middle of it, they didn't see it, but now looking back, we can see how His providence. Yeah, that's good. All right, here I've got uh, ten of them, and and some y'all have already mentioned. Just a, a broad summary: we're just ignorant of church history as a modern day Christian, and, and ignorant is not a bad word. It just means you don't know. To be ignorant means you don't know. And most of us, even if we've been Christians a while, we just don't know very much church history. If we do, we typically know maybe just about our recent church history. Uh, or maybe we know some of the reformers. Often we're very weak on early church history. And sometimes as Protestants, we just completely ignore the medieval time, the medieval age. And we don't even know what happened. The church just went into a dark period and that's it. Well, that's true, but we need to learn some lessons from that. And there are some bright lights as well. So we're just really ignorant of church history. We need to correct that. Church history used to be taught in every seminary. Every pastor had to know some church history. Now they're dropping courses right and left. You don't learn all the languages. You don't learn church history. But one of my favorite classes was church history. We had two semesters of it. And I even took an elective later on charismatic theology, which covered the history of the charismatic movements. So you can expect more when we get to that, probably in the spring. We'll cover some history of the charismatic movement. Um, but we need to not be ignorant of church history. Number two, we need to realize God is at work in history. It's, it's a testimony of God's sovereign providence. We believe in God's sovereignty. We say he's providential over history. But then we sort of ignore the, the fact that he's been working in the church since the beginning. And we shouldn't do that. Number three, Christ said, I will build my church. So when we study it, it allows us to watch his promise unfold. He said he would build his church. How did he do it? How is he continuing to do it? What's the trajectory look like? Where has the church stumbled? I once had somebody in an older church I was a part of. It was a good church, but the member said, you keep talking about these Puritans. You keep talking about Jonathan Edwards. Why does that matter? And I said, who's somebody you like in church history? And he said, well, I don't really like church history. And I said, okay, who's your favorite preacher outside of your local church? He said, John MacArthur. I said, why do we care what John MacArthur says? And he gave me all these reasons. I said, that's the same reason we care what John Calvin said or what the Puritans said. And we might agree, let's say more with John MacArthur, but he's a man that's in current church history. And then there are these men and sometimes even women in, in past church history that we can learn from. And so the same reasons apply today. If you like John Piper, if you like R.C. Sproul when he was alive teaching and preaching, the reasons you like him are a lot of the same reasons you will like these teachers in church history. It's a history of Christ's body and it's our history if we're part of the body. This is our family history. People go to, how much extent do people go to to learn their genealogy? Trace it all the way back to the founding fathers from Europe, from wherever you came from. Well, this is our family history, our spiritual history. And we've got some of these uncles in church history that we really don't want to claim, right? We've got some cousins we'd rather not, not admit that they're part of the family. And we've got some people who sneak in and act like they're part of the family, but they're really not. So it's our history. Uh, the truth has been preserved, number five, and passed down through history. 
it's not inspired. So everything that's said in church historical writings is not equal to Scripture. Of course not. But there are things that God has made sure were recorded throughout time. And I believe, and I, I think you would agree, that's to encourage and teach us along the way. So we ought to be encouraged by the history of the truth being passed down and, and warned, like Caleb said, by the history of error. We really need to know the false teachings that are out there, the major ones. We need to know about them. And it starts way back in the first century. Satan's just been using those same tactics to twist the Bible, to twist theology. We have much to learn from former believers who walked with God. So if you read Hebrews 11, what is Hebrews 11 all about? Yeah, it's the hall of heroes, right? The hall of faith. Some of them are scoundrels, right? How'd they make it in like Sam's? That's church history too. We've got good, we've got bad, and yet God is working throughout church history. So we need to learn from them and we need to continue to be warned by their mistakes. So that's number eight. We have much to learn from their flaws. We love Martin Luther. We talk about him on our Reformation celebration. We often quote him, but he had some flaws. You know, his view of the Jewish people was racist. It was anti-Semitic. And, and later, Germans would use some of that rhetoric. They would use it to support their views during World War II. Uh, John Calvin, not everything he said is, is something that I would sign off on, that I would agree with. But I love John Calvin's writings. The same with the Puritans and so on. But that's just minor flaws. We also have a major flaw. Luther's is a major flaw, but we have uh, theological errors as well that come up, like with origin. Also, we want to be a good apologist. And being a good apologist means being a good historian. If you've ever, has anybody ever talked to a Roman Catholic and they bring up church history? Anybody? That's a very common argument. Because their argument is that their church goes back 2,000 years. It can be traced all the way back to Peter. And they make historical arguments. And they actually often say, look, history's on our side. You Protestants are a new invention. And so if we know something about the gap between the Bible and Martin Luther, that's going to help us to be a good apologist, a good a defender of the faith. I think this is the last one here. Uh, history helps 21st century Christians have a right perspective about their own place in the church. We're not the newest people. So when you say, I got a new idea that no one's ever seen before in the Bible, that should concern you. Now, it might be that you're one of those rare people in church history who has seen something for the first time, but not likely after 2,000 years. So you need to, to think about that. You need to realize there's people I can check with that have come before me that are still living right now. That's why we use commentaries to check our thinking. Sometimes the commentaries are wrong, but this helps. Okay, I got two more here. I forgot I added these extra two. We must know that the gospel and the scriptures are worth dying for. You're going to see up until about the 1800s, 17, 1800s, most solid biblical theologians and preachers were killed. Most of the ones that we really love from early church history were martyred for the faith. Not because they were just calling themselves a Christian, but they actually believed it. They actually believed the gospel. And this should be little g, not, not the gospel like of Matthew. It should be little g, the gospel and the Bible. It's, it's worth dying for. All the way up through Bloody Mary's uh, martyrs that died for the faith. 
Bloody Mary said she was a Christian. But she persecuted those who were not willing to follow the Roman Catholic Church because they believed in the Bible. And we often forget because in America, there's not a lot of Christians dying for the gospel. There's not a lot of Christians dying for their faith, dying for what they believe in Scripture. There are people losing their jobs now and getting in trouble with different groups, but no one's really being put to death in this country. They are in other places. In Afghanistan, they're dying for these things. And number 12, we must know that historical theology is important. Historical theology is important. So there's church history. What's history? The facts of what happened. But a lot of this class is historical theology as well. Because it's not any fun to just list. Well, it would be for me. Some of you would enjoy just straight history. Others, not so much. But we're going to include the theology. The major issues that come up. And we're not going to deal with every theological issue, but the major ones that come up. And that's intertwined with the people and places and events. So history is who did it, when it happened, why it happened. But theology is what they believed, what they taught, what challenged that, what they were challenging, and so on. So there's my 12. Okay, so where does church history start? Where does it start? Well, it starts in Acts 2 with Pentecost. Now, some of our covenantal brothers will say there's the church in the Old Testament. And there is, I think, the people of God there. But the word ecclesia, the word church, is found in Acts 2. And it's found when Jesus says, I will build my church, looking forward. But it's formed on the day of Pentecost, when people are saved. When 3,000 came to faith and were baptized, that's the first church. And so we don't really start church history after the apostles. We start it right there in the book of Acts. And since it's not a Bible study on the book of Acts, and we could spend the whole year and into next year going through Acts, I'll let you read that, and, and maybe there'll be a class or a sermon series on Acts. But remember, the church starts in Acts, and the whole book of Acts is church history. All the epistles are to the churches that were started by Paul or, or helped by John or James and so on. So remember, that's part of church history. So let's just talk about the order of books. You have a handout there. And I just want to run through this. This is really handy to put in your Bible or keep with your notes. Because you're studying a certain book. Maybe you're going to a Bible study. And you want to think about where it comes up in the order of books that were written. Now, they're not dated as far as a date. They don't put a date at the front, right? Today, there's a published date. They don't do that. They didn't do that with ancient documents. But we can sort of work through Acts, and we can sort of work through some other things that Paul says, and we can look and see the order of books and when they were written. And this might surprise you if you haven't looked at this before. What's the very first book probably written of the New Testament? James. Some will say Galatians, but I, I hold to James. So this is what I hold to. If you look at like the MacArthur Study Bible or some of Dr. Robert Thomas's writings, it, it's going to be James. Others will argue Galatians, but the consensus is James. It's the earliest book. And if you didn't know this, you might think, well, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament and they're all in chronological order. Well, they're not in chronological order. Well, we'll Maybe talk a little bit about order just in a minute. But James is the oldest. Then Galatians. And you can see, when, when is James written? 
45 to 48 AD. 45 to 48 AD. If you guys don't have this handout, it's over there by the door. We are looking at chronological order of the New Testament books. And on the back, there's another one that you'll need. So the oldest book is James. We can uh, work through there, work through what people have said in church history. And this is within about 13 to 15 years after Christ's death. Really early. And we can start to see the struggles that the church is already going through. The apostles are still alive. We have people here who are struggling already and James is challenging them. James is hitting them hard. Right? If you read, who's read the book of James or really studied it? Is that a soft kind of feel-good book? The first book to be written was not one that's just about sort of feeling good, but it's, hey, live out your faith. There's some encouraging things in there, but it's, it's live out your faith and strive to live for Christ. Then Paul starts writing as he's going on his missionary journeys. He writes back to these churches that he's founded and a few that, he's, that he didn't found, like Romans, that he's going to visit. So you can see Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans. And then we're getting into the late 50s and Matthew writes his account. Now this doesn't mean that no one knew about Jesus or what he taught. There were teachings verbally being passed along. What Jesus said, the apostles would teach. And their disciples would also teach. And they were just called the sayings of Jesus. And that... Of course, God oversaw that. He made sure that the church knew the truth. And then it began to be written down in these books of the Bible. There's arguments about Mark writing first. I I don't buy that. It's more of a critical uh, look at the New Testament. I think Matthew and then Luke. And we see some other letters of Paul. Luke finishes his writings with Acts. Other letters of Paul. Paul's late ministry with 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And then we see Peter starting to write. We see... Jude, half-brother of Jesus, Hebrews, Mark, John, 1st through 3rd John, and Revelation. That's probably the order. Again, we don't know for certain, but most of these, it would be hard to argue otherwise. There's a few that would be different. Put it in your Bible. My wife's always asking me, where, where's, that, where's that chart that you got in seminary? And so she printed one off. She put it in her Bible. Every time she's studying a book, and myself as well, I want to look up, if it's in the New Testament, where it falls in the order here. Because sometimes that helps. It will help you think about what Christians were reading and and how the gospel is going out throughout the Middle East and Roman Empire. Okay, so now we're done with the church history in the Bible. I know that was a quick overview. But you're going to read your Bible every year. You're going to know church history. Most Christians who've been reading their Bible, they might not know the dates of the letters, but they know generally what they're about, and they're continuously studying them. But before we get into who came right after the apostles, what happened to the 12 disciples? Have you ever wondered? Where'd they go? What happened to them? How did they die? Well, we know a few, but only two are really recorded in scripture. The rest, we have to look to early church tradition. But we have to be careful with church tradition because it is tradition. And what do we know about tradition? That man can really elevate tradition. That the Roman Catholic Church can go back and elevate certain people. 
or even just early Christians, as they're writing about the generation that came before them, they can elevate a certain person higher and, and say things about them that aren't necessarily true. So we're not, I'm not saying that this chart here is inspired, but it does give us what early Christians thought, what they believed. So let's go through this. First, we're looking at Peter. What happened to Peter? Well, he was not the first pope. You won't find that in the Bible. You won't even find the word pope this early in Christianity in the first century. Tradition says, and I think this is pretty true, that he was crucified upside down in Rome. You remember Jesus said, you'll you'll be led where you don't want to go when you're old. And they'll do to you basically similar things compared to what they're doing to Christ. And church history says that he, he told the emperor, don't crucify me upright. That's how my Lord died. I'm not worthy. Turn me over. Crucify me upside down. And it's, it's thought that he was put in the middle of the place where they did the races. You know, uh, what's the movie Ben-Hur? Who's seen Ben-Hur? There's a newer version, so it's not just the older folks here that have seen Ben-Hur. There's a newer one out. It's not quite as accurate, but Ben-Hur, where they, where they run the chariot races... That's where it's said that they crucified Peter under the reign of Nero. Right after 2 Timothy. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he says, I'm, I'm basically going to die for the faith. I fought the good fight. And so it fits with what tradition says. Later, and I don't, I don't think this is right. Later, tradition suggests that he went up and visited Britain, England, and Gaul, which is modern day France. So every nation that was part of the Roman Empire wants to claim that he went and visited them. Or Peter went and visited them. I don't think this is the case because in, in Romans, for example, he's just hoping to get to Spain. He just wants to get to Spain, which is sort of the furthest that he can imagine going at that time. There's no indication that he went north any further. What about Andrew? He supposedly preached in Scythia. A lot of barbarians there. These were the chariots where they put the, the knives and swords on the wheels. And they would just run through a group of uh, an army and chop them up with these swords that were spinning around. Scythe chariots. He went throughout Asia Minor and Greece. Eventually crucified at Patras and Achaia. That's part of Greece. Not as certain about this, but I think it's all we have. So could be. James, son of Zebedee. We know exactly what happened to James, son of Zebedee. Why? We know for sure what happened. It's in the Bible. Acts 12. He was martyred for the faith by Herod Agrippa. You remember they took him outside. They stoned him. And he was killed, martyred for the faith by Herod Agrippa. What about John? John, the one who wrote so much of the New Testament. Tradition goes, and this fits with his letters, if you trace the origination and where he's writing to, he went from Jerusalem to Ephesus. A lot of Christians left Jerusalem during the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Before the city fell, they left and spread around the empire. And probably in the mid to late 60s, he went to Ephesus. That's the major church in Asia Minor. I'll have some maps in a minute. And so he goes there, and he's the apostle. He's the longest living apostle. So if you're alive in that day, and you're having problems in your church, who do you want to come and speak to you or write a letter to you? Well, the last living apostle. And so John felt a burden to write not only an account of what happened in the ministry of Christ on the earth, but he also wanted to teach uh, about some of these heresies. So 1 John, for example. And you'll hear about the, 
the false teachers, even in Second and Third John, about, about not letting them come and stay in your house. They were people who taught Gnosticism. What's Gnosticism? Well, that's pretty much mixing witchcraft or mysticism with Christianity. It's like a lot of groups today who say, I have secret knowledge. And we'll look more at this as it develops in church history. But these are the folks who said, come and join my church, my group. We have secret knowledge that you can't get unless you're in the core group, unless you're in the inner circle and we have certain things we practice, certain things we do. It's really popular today. It's not just the Mormons. Mormons are the biggest group of of Gnostics today. But a lot of these books that are sold in the Christian bookstore are just Gnostic. Uh, The Enneagram book, that whole thing. The um, secret. Uh, The folks who say they have something special. A lot of Oprah Winfrey's. It's Gnosticism. And it's starting right here in the early church. John is saying these people have denied the person of Christ. They've denied his deity or his humanity and they've mixed all this mystical stuff in. It's thought that John died a natural death in Ephesus around 100. Probably the only apostle to die of old age. Now we don't know for certain what happened to all of them, but this one is pretty accurate. You can even go to uh, that area today and they have a tomb that goes way back that's supposed to be John's. We can't be certain about that, but it is very likely based on his letters and what he's talking about that he's there in Ephesus. And you remember in Revelation, Jesus tells him, take this letter to the seven churches. That's because they were in that general area that he was ministering in. Philip supposedly crucified in Hierapolis in Asia Minor. That's all we know of Philip. Matthew, the guy who wrote the book of Matthew. Uh, there's a lot of traditions about him, so we, we can't be certain either. He, he went to Macedonia, Persia, Parthia, Ethiopia, all different directions. Not as clear there. Thomas, if you ask any Christian from India, they will say the apostle who founded the church in India was Thomas. And to them, it's not even a question. They have sort of what we would say is a, the Catholic church here. They have a, a church that's like Catholicism in India. And it's supposedly started by Thomas. Um, it could be likely a lot of early Christians did go east. The gospel within a couple of hundred years went all the way to China. And then it was snuffed out. But it was in the Middle East for a long time until Islam came about. And we're going to talk about Islam in this class. Until Islam came about, Christianity was very strong in the east. But it was also very susceptible to error. To what's called Nestorianism. So Thomas went to Babylon, supposedly, and then he went further, probably to India, or close enough to get the gospel in that direction. Bartholomew went with Philip to Hierapolis and likely martyred later in the kingdom of Armenia, which, by the way, was the first country to be a fully Christian nation from the government down. Armenia. James, son of Alphaeus, often confused with James, the brother of Jesus. There's Two Jameses mentioned in the Apostles list. And then there's another James, which is the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. Possibly he ministered in Syria and then was crucified. Thaddeus, often confused with the brother Jude of Jesus, uh, ministered in Edessa, a Middle Eastern area, Syrian area. Simon the Zealot. He variously connected uh, with different places. We don't even know much about him. These are suggestions. And the last guy, we know what happened to him. Why? Because it's in the Bible. 
So two of them we know. James, who was martyred early in Acts 12, and Judas Iscariot, who committed suicide after his betrayal of Jesus. Those we're certain about. The others, it's a little more murky. Probably we have a good idea for Peter, and we have a good idea for Paul. It's not included in the original 12. And after that, John, and it gets even murkier after that. All right, questions before we move on from the apostles? Y'all ready for the quiz? Some of these people haven't been in my class before, looking a lot more serious than the rest of you. I taught this last year to some homeschool teenagers, and uh, we did a quiz every week. And they had 10 questions, and they were often multiple choice, but sometimes fill in the blank. And man, they really sweated over those quizzes. And they had an exam that was 100 questions. They had a midterm and a final, and it was covering all the stuff. So they had to take really good notes. Okay, so that's where church history starts. It starts with the Great Commission, Jesus sending them out. They, they preach that, Peter preaches that sermon on, um, in Jerusalem in Acts 2. Huge church. They take the gospel out. It spreads. The apostles have now passed from the scene. Who's left? Well, there's not more apostles. The apostles can't appoint apostles. There's only one person that can appoint apostles, and that's Christ. And he had to appoint them directly. He's not still appointing apostles today. He didn't appoint apostles after the first group. So the apostles, though, still trained up leaders. They still trained up leaders. They had to pass it down. According to 2 Timothy 2.2, they had to pass the teaching, the truth, the gospel, and all the doctrines of Scripture to faithful men who could teach. So here it is, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations of teaching is he talking about here? How many do you see in that verse? We've got Paul, and he's teaching. Who's he teaching? Timothy. And there were many other witnesses, but he's just tracing that one line. And then Timothy's going to entrust them to faithful men. Those men are going to then entrust them to more faithful men after them. That's how it continues all the way to today. When this gets broken, when somebody says they have a new revelation, they go start some new heretical cult, this line has been broken. It's not the line of authority of the Pope. It's not the line of authority of church tradition. It's faithful men studying the Bible and teaching others how to study the Bible and know theology from Scripture all the way down, generation after generation. When you think about that, God has worked in such a way in His providence for 2,000 years to make sure there's always a true church. How many bad churches have you been to? Maybe you've been to a few heretical churches. But God is always making sure the truth is being passed down. Not by appointing one man to rule over the whole church around the world, but by each church training up people after them, training up men who can lead, and the next generation, and the next generation, and so on. So why do we teach so much here? Why do we have classes and Bible studies? Why are the youth up there studying the Bible? Because we want to do this. We want to always be about this. Training, teaching, making sure the next generation is not going to lose the truth. They might deny it, some of them, and and turn away, 
because they were never saved to begin with. But there's always a remnant of men, leaders, and even women who will continue to know the truth and teach it. So let's talk about that next generation, the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers, who are they? They're named because they're very close to the apostles. They're the next generation. So all the early church teachers and theologians are called fathers. Why? Because they're older, because they're way back. It's like saying American founding fathers, the fathers of our nation. They were the first group. Well, these are the first group of men who were theologians. They left writings. They left something that we could read today even as we find these documents over time. So we're going to make a run through of some of these, not get very far today. We're going to look at Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Barnabas of Alexandria, Papias, which we have very little from Papias left or that's been found, Polycarp, a great hero of the faith. And eventually we'll talk about some early writings that we don't know exactly who wrote them, but they're important because of what they teach and how they interpret Scripture. The Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the letter of Diognetus or Diognetius. So the early date of these church leaders and their writings is what makes them so significant. Why? Well, let's say you're thinking of a doctrine today. What's a doctrine that's challenged today? Pretty much all of them, but name one. Anyone? Doctrine that's being challenged today. Inerrancy? Is that what you said? Inerrancy. So it might be helpful to go and see if these guys said anything about that. Now, sometimes they don't speak on issues because it wasn't an issue in their day. Every Christian, of course, believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, so they didn't feel the need to write about it. What kind of challenges do you find to Christian teaching or doctrine today? Right, so we can go back here. What did they believe? Right, it's in the Bible, but we also, kind of as a secondary argument, it's not as powerful, right? But we want to say, look, even the early church fathers that went right after the apostles didn't believe that. Because people will then turn to Scripture and say, well, you could maybe take this verse this way. Well, if, if Clement spoke on it and Clement knew Paul and Paul wrote it and Clement had something to say about it, we should take that into consideration. It doesn't mean Clement always got it right, though, because it's not inspired. It's not as if the Holy Spirit made sure that everything Clement wrote was perfect without error. Only Scripture is perfect and without error. So we've got to be careful how much we place on them. It's like a good friend that you trust. And they know the Bible well, and you want to ask them a question. But every once in a while, they say something that might not be right, or you want to do more study to check up on them. That's what we're doing with these guys. Now, during the Reformation and even today, uh, the Roman Catholic Church will say, these guys are the fathers. They tell us what to believe, and everything they say must be believed. And I would say, no, sometimes they're not, they're not right. Sometimes they overemphasize things, like Ignatius. He's going to be eaten by lions. He knows that. He's going on a long journey to Rome to be eaten by lions. So where's his focus? Right? Living for Christ, dying for Christ. And he even overemphasizes certain things that get caught by the church and continue even to this day that are not the best. So the reformers and even people today say, look, 
We can look to the fathers and make an argument, but ultimately the argument is Scripture. And even the Roman Catholics will take these early church fathers and sort of twist the interpretation of the early church fathers. So let's go ahead and start with a couple of these. By the way, here's a good timeline. Maybe I need, a, I need to make a nice... Would you guys like a timeline of the early church fathers? Amy saying, yeah, yeah. Uh, to print out and I can, I can give it to you. Or maybe email, since I have most of you on the signups. Um, one that's printable. But this is a good timeline of the first few church fathers. So we have Pentecost, around 30 or, or 33, depending on when you think the crucifixion of Jesus was. Then Paul gets converted. Then Cornelius gets saved. Church in Antioch planted. So we're still in the book of Acts, basically. James is martyred. Jerusalem council. Paul's missionary journeys. And now, basically, the scriptures close, except for a few more books by John. So Peter and Paul die, right, in the mid-60s. Timothy is in prison. He gets released. Jerusalem is destroyed, 70 A.D., one of the most important dates you need to know in church history. The first important date. There's very few dates that I would say you have to know. 70 A.D. is important. The whole city was wiped out. Jesus talks about this. He says it's going to happen. It does happen, and it happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came, and they sacked Jerusalem, and they destroyed it. They destroyed the temple, and there hasn't been a temple built since. So then John's ministering basically between 70 up to 100. So he writes those last few books that are being written in the New Testament. Timothy is still alive. Timothy didn't write any books of the Bible. And now look, Clement is the first apostolic father. You see that Clement, the pastor in Rome. Not the Pope, just the pastor. Just the older who does a lot of the teaching and the church in Rome. So who is he overlapping with? Well, he's overlapping with the gospel, I mean, the, the Apostle John right there. Clement is a pastor before the book of Revelation is finished and sent out. That's amazing. And then we got Papias, Polycarp, Ignatius, early church fathers who knew the Apostle John. They were discipled by John. They were influenced by John. So just like anyone that can overemphasize things, the majority of what they're saying lines up with what John taught, with what Scripture says. And then we have this early little booklet called the Didache. And then Ignatius is martyred. Polycarp is in Smyrna. So that takes us through 110. That's where we're headed next 15 minutes and next week. They wrote in Greek. Uh, we have a Bible, that a New Testament was written in Greek. And it's been translated for us. But when you go back and read the King James, it's a little bit harder, isn't it? Right? It's a little bit harder to understand the New Testament. So that's why there's continual translations trying to better help us understand the Greek and the English. Well, a lot of these guys, some of their writings weren't found, like the Didache wasn't found until the late 1800s. So it's found, it's translated, so it's hard to understand. Sometimes the way they write is difficult because it doesn't sound like the Bible. Because it's not the Bible. So you read Clement and you're like, wow, this is rough compared to reading something from Paul, which is, can be challenging. But it, it doesn't have that beautiful inspiration, that, that perfection. 
And so it can be a challenge, but I do encourage you to, to get a few of these. Often they're just letters, so they're pretty short. It's not impossible to read. Shakespeare is much harder in my mind. Um, and, and every high school student learns to read Shakespeare or at least has to read some of it. That's the thing. People talk about Bible translations. I'll, I'll go off topic a bit. They say, oh, we ought to give, you know, teens a very watered down translation so they can understand it. But what are they reading in high school? Shakespeare, right? What, what are some of these books? Uh, the um, Jane Austen, right? All these older challenging books. But for some reason, the NASB is, is too difficult. It's not. You just read it and get used to it. I'll try not to take too many diversions, okay? So there's Clement. Now I'm going to put some pictures of paintings up. That's probably not what Clement looked like. Sometimes there's a description that's passed down of what a guy looked like. We don't always know uh, what they look like. The, the circles around their head, that's supposed to be a halo. That's where the tradition of halos comes from. Supposedly, every saint has a halo in certain traditions like Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox. It, it originally was to say these are holy men that are set apart. The problem is all Christians are holy and set apart. So just, you know, don't get too worked up about the pictures. They're just what we could find that are older. This is very old. It's a mosaic here of Clement. So who's Clement? The fourth pastor of the church in Rome. Not Romy, Rome. Y'all see that misspelling in the back, Michael? Romy? The fourth pastor in Rome. So if you look at Roman Catholic tradition, they have, you know, Peter's the first pope, and they have everyone listed. No, these guys are just pastors. Peter was not the pastor in Rome. He probably visited there. He probably taught them, of course, when he was there. But there's no indication that he founded the church or that he stayed there for a long time being their pastor. But it is pretty clear that this man Clement was the fourth pastor there around 90 to 100 AD. And he came after Peter, if you take that view, uh, Linus and Cletus. Y'all thought Cletus was a country name, right? That's an ancient Greek guy there, Cletus. According to tradition, but again, that's filtered through Roman Catholicism. Uh, he's probably born around 30 AD and died around the same time as the Apostle John. So this guy's living during the time of the Apostles. He's converted under their ministry. He's probably mentioned in Philippians 4.3. This is really neat because we're seeing an intersection with the New Testament. Look at Philippians 4.3. This is one of the few people we're going to talk about in church history actually mentioned in the Bible. Maybe the only one. Philippians 4.3. Here's Paul writing. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So there's a struggle going on in Philippi and there's two women who have some influence and they're at odds, they're fighting. And Paul's talking about unity in the church. And he says, work with them. He's addressing the whole church, probably the, the leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders. And he says, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Clement is, is probably there, maybe with Paul in Rome. Not necessarily in prison, but Paul knows him. 
He's helpful to Paul. He eventually becomes the pastor of the church there in Rome. But I think it's really likely that Clement here in Philippians 4.3 is the Clement of Rome, the fourth pastor there. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty neat. Here we have a guy in church history that's mentioned in Scripture. Doesn't mean what he wrote is Scripture. right? Some people will say this is basically like Scripture. We should include it in our Bible. It's, it's like the Apocrypha that many people include in the Scripture. No, it's a letter to the churches, but it's not Scripture. He's a disciple of both Peter and Paul from their time in Rome. He's martyred later under Emperor Trajan. How would you like to be discipled by Peter and Paul? That's amazing. Clement says a lot of things that sound just like Paul. I'll show you a little sample of his letter to the Corinthians. And this helps us. It makes a really good argument for justification by faith alone. It makes a really good argument for core doctrines that we hold today. Because here's Clement, tutored, taught, discipled by Peter and Paul. And what does he believe? Now he's known for his letter to the Corinthians in the mid-90s. It's the oldest document we have outside the New Testament that is focused on Christianity. The oldest. It's called First Clement. If you were to go buy it today, it's called First Clement. Or you can look it up on the internet and read it. It's not extremely long. It's a letter to the Corinthians. Imagine that. What happened in the New Testament with the, the Corinthian church? Problems. First Corinthians, major problems. Second Corinthians, still got some problems, Paul says, you need to work on. And guess what? By the mid-90s, the church still has problems. It's kind of a lesson in once some bad thinking gets into the church, it can take some time, even with the apostles, uh, to get that out. So here's Clement. He hears about the Corinthians fighting. And he's the pastor in Rome. Corinth isn't too far away. I mean, it's a little bit different culture. Rome is a Roman culture and, and Corinth is in Greece. But he sends a letter there to help them be unified, to help them stop fighting. And everyone's pretty sure that Clement wrote it. Later, uh, a church historian in the 300s, Eusebius, said that he wrote it, that Clement wrote this letter. Another man, Origen, said that Clement wrote this letter. And you'll find that Anytime you're talking about church history or even the Bible, everyone wants to debate who wrote it. Did Clement really write it? Right? They'll say, did Paul really write these letters? Maybe someone else wrote it. Pretty certain that Clement wrote First Clement. But Second Clement, that's another book attributed to him, that would have been later and not written by him. So here's what Eusebius. Eusebius is writing in the 300s. So a couple hundred years later, but one of the earliest church historians writing about previous Christians. He said, there's one acknowledged epistle of this Clement. Great and admirable, which he wrote in the name of the church of Rome to the church at Corinth, sedition having then arisen in the latter church. So, so Corinth is facing a church split. We're aware that this epistle has been publicly read in very many churches, both in old times and also in our own day. It was so popular among early Christians, this letter of Clement, 1 Clement, that some argued, and even still today, they argue that it should be in the Bible because it goes back so far. I don't think it should. If you read it, you'll probably agree with me on that. I just thought of another book on Gnosticism. Um, what's the book? Calling Jesus? What's that book called? Jesus Calling. There you go. 
that's, that's Gnostic in the sense that you're supposed to have, well, this woman had revelations, she's writing them down, and we're going to read it and benefit from it. Was his uh, letter not included in the canon because he wasn't an apostle? That was one of the reasons, right? We'll talk about canonicity. That's a good, her question was, uh, the reason they didn't include First Clement in the canon, the list of books of the New Testament, is that because he was not an apostle. And I think that was one of the reasons. There are some other reasons as well, but that, that's a good one. That's a big one. So later we'll talk about canonicity in church history. How did they know that the books in the New Testament are all that we should have in the New Testament? Or like the Da Vinci Code movie and books and all that, did they just sort of make it up? Or like it's very often taught in the world today, did Emperor Constantine decide what books were supposed to go in the New Testament? Did a secular ruler decide that? There's a lot of Christians who hold that view. That it wasn't until the 300s that they had actually figured out what should be in the New Testament. It's a great subject. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. So here is some writings from First Clement. Look at this. For Jacob are, are all the priests. Of Jacob are all the priests and the Levites who minister unto the altar of God. Of him is the Lord Jesus as concerning the flesh. Of him are kings and rulers and governors in the line of Judah Yea, and the rest of his tribes are held in no small honor, seeing that God promises, saying, Thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven. Doesn't quite sound like scripture, right? It's a little different, a little more rugged. Sometimes they were writing in the early church a more um, fancy Greek than you might find in the plain Greek of the New Testament. But he's making an argument here. Let's look where he's going. Paragraph 3. They all, therefore, were glorified and magnified, talking about the saints in the Old Testament, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through his will. So, Calvin, this Calvin, not not John Calvin, Calvin. The early church, they didn't believe in justification by faith alone. I mean, they taught works. The early church fathers taught works, right? That's what your friend is telling you. Of course, you can take them to Scripture, and they're going to say, but that that's not how the early church fathers interpreted it. There you go. You just whip out First Clement on your phone, make your argument. Maybe, if they're going there with church history. Because here he is. He, what is he saying? It's not through works. It's not through obedience to the law. What is it? His will. And then he continues on. This is a key one. Fourth paragraph. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus... He's even talking about calling and election here. We are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith. See, when Martin Luther said, we're only justified by faith alone in Christ alone, the Catholic Church said that's never been heard of before in church history. Well, here's Clement right here. It's not through all these things, but through faith. But means none of the stuff you've just listed works. None of that is going to save you. It's through faith. Whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is, I think this is the 32nd chapter of his letter. It, it's not like these chapters are very long. But this is a good early indication of what the early church fathers believe. What the apostolic fathers believe that were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. 
All right, let's just introduce Polycarp, and then I think we're going to be done. Danny? Do you know if um, Clement wrote anything on destruction? I don't think he did. Not that I'm aware of. There's very little about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's almost as if once they left, they were focused on Christianity and the gospel and, and not really looking back to that. There were some other sources that recorded that. I'm not aware of the early church fathers really addressing that directly. Polycarp. Polycarp lived around 69 to around 155. So he's, he's a little later. He's still part of that first group called the Apostolic Fathers. Why do we call them the Apostolic Fathers? They knew the apostles. They were trained by the apostles. They were discipled by the apostles. Probably saved some of them by the apostles' preaching. So Polycarp is famous for knowing John. He knows John. And he's also a friend of another guy that we'll look at next week called Ignatius. He's also a friend of Papias. So not only does he know uh, the Apostle John, but he's friends with some of these famous um, church fathers, apostolic fathers. He also ends up teaching the next generation, a man named Irenaeus. Here's the problem. We only have one letter, though. It's likely these men wrote more, but we only have what we have, what we can find what's been passed down or sometimes dug up. And Polycarp wrote the letter to the Philippians. Churches are still struggling, just like today, with truth, with doctrine, with interpretation of Scripture. And so Polycarp knew John. People respect him. They look to him as a teacher. They look to him as a theologian. When problems come up, he writes a letter. Similar to Paul. Paul wrote letters to churches that had issues. So there, he tells them what they should be doing. There's also something written after Polycarp dies about his death. And it's considered to be one of the earliest genuine accounts of Christian martyrdom. Polycarp was killed for the faith. He was hunted down by Roman soldiers and he was burned at the stake. And it's really awesome what he said when he was killed, but we'll look at that next week. One more slide for today. Polycarp's key because he's a connecting link between the first and second century. He lives into that second century. And so he's a link. Smyrna also, where he lived, where he ministered, is a city mentioned in Revelation 2. Well, how did he die? Stabbed to death at 86 years old. Then his body was burned at the stake. Uh, The later writing about that was called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it talks about his death. So I want to go over that next week and, and what happened. Because Polycarp's famous for what he said as he's about to be burned and killed on the stake. But just to look at what he wrote, the epistle of the Philippians, or to the Philippians. Here's, here's a key verse. I know that through grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. The early church didn't believe in faith alone and Christ alone, did they? What does he say? It's through grace you're saved, not of works. Well, that's in, that's in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Who can really argue with that? Well, a lot of people in church history have argued with that. A lot of people say you have to do works and add it to your faith. You have to add something to God's grace. You have to add something to your faith. And here we have Clement, the very first apostolic father, and the second polycarp who were trained by the apostles saying, it's not through works, it's through grace. 
So don't let people tell you that the early church believed in works righteousness or adding to your faith. It's only through the faith that you have in Christ. And even that is given by God, Paul says in Ephesians 2. So there's a map. Smyrna, right above Ephesus. John's in Ephesus. Polycarp's in Smyrna. Very close. They knew each other. I'm sure they talked on many occasions. All right, we better stop there. I don't want to go over as we have a lot of people about to come into this room. So next week we'll pick up and hopefully finish the Apostolic Fathers. If you have questions for me after class, it's a good time to catch me down here. Um, I will take questions. We'll have some, some short discussion at times. Uh, but there's not really time in this class or this size of a class to go into a long discussion. Or if you disagree, it's not really the time to do that in class. But I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards. Lord, I do thank you this morning for church history, all that you have recorded for us to learn from. Let's learn from these men and be encouraged and persevere in the faith. We want to serve Christ just like they did. And if we have to die for him or be persecuted for him, we want to hold up strong like they did. In the name of Jesus, amen.